invite you this evening to turn to Luke's Gospel, chapter 10, Luke chapter 10, as we continue in our study through the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 10, and we're going to commence reading at verse 25. You'll realize when we read the opening lines of verse 25 why it will entered into my head to begin with a lawyer joke tonight, but it's best to stay on good terms with your fellow elders, so I'm not going to go there. <laughs> Sorry, brother. <laughs> my wife, when I said to her, she... She chases me, don't you dare. <laughs> so, so I obeyed. <laughs> and I'm no jokes, just remarking on it. Just, that's sufficient for a joke tonight. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. This is the word of the Lord. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said unto him, What is written in the law? How readest thou? And he answering said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy strength, and with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. And he said unto him, Thou hast answered right. This do, and thou shalt live. Amen. We're going to end the reading there. That's the portion we will look at tonight with the Lord's help. So may the Lord give us eyes to see and ears to hear His precious Word this evening. Let's pray. Let's again look to the Lord for His help. Father, we, we believe the testimony of Scripture that every Word of God is pure. We believe that Scripture is profitable. And we believe that faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. I pray for those unconverted here, that they would receive the precious glad tidings that Jesus saves, that they would trust in Him. I pray that Thy people also will receive it afresh, that their burden of sin has been lifted by Christ fully and completely. Help us then tonight to understand what you're saying to us, what we ought to glean from these verses. May the Spirit attend the preaching, taking the preacher in all of his weakness, to deliver a message as thus saith the Lord. Hear prayer. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. One of Satan's tools, and he has many, but one of Satan's tools that he endeavors to apply to men is that of clouding their view of eternity. He endeavors by whatever means he can to prevent men, to hinder men from thinking about that which comes after this life. If he can just get men to occupy themselves with the here and now, to so prioritize the present that the future is irrelevant, he will win in destroying them forever. You see this, of course, in the language of the Lord Jesus Christ when He speaks of the time of His return. It will be as in the days of Noah when they're eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. And His intention there is not to indicate something inherently wrong in eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. There's nothing wrong with that, but but if that's all we're living to, if that's the only thing that matters, 
these events, these experiences of life are the only things that concern us, then, then watch. For He comes in an hour that you don't know. And He will take us unawares, yes, as a thief in the night to those who are not looking for His return. So He tries to cloud your view. He tries to, to get you to occupy yourself with all sorts of things that are, have little consequence in terms of the hereafter. And you'll know this. You will know this. Christians struggle with this. Christians struggle to maintain a perspective that is upon eternity, that considers the, the weight of eternity. We think we will live forever. Now, we don't say that, but we, we act like we will, and so we, we waste much of our time. We, we don't endeavor to redeem the time, as Paul exhorts. We forget that our lives are like a vapor that appeareth for a little time and vanisheth away. Our lives are as a ship that is sailed. It's like a weaver's shuttle. It is like the span of a hand. These are, these are certain depictions that were given in Scripture in relation to the brevity of life. And that sense of brevity is, is understood properly when we realize that it is in contrast with the vastness of eternity. Seventy or eighty years from a certain perspective may seem like a long time. But we can never come to that conclusion when we think on eternity. Do not succumb to Satan's tool in this area. Do not. Try. Try your best to maintain a perspective that you're going to live after this experience that you call life here and now. You will live on. You will live on. Oh, that's, that's not what the businesses and the corporations want you to think about. They want you to to seize the day in relation to the opportunities that they can offer you. They want you to grasp upon all the pleasures that they can pitch and sell you. But there's little in the way of any marketing that deals with the eternal. The portion before us is in some way, it would appear to be, uh, different and not connected to what has come before. That's not entirely the case, but it certainly uh, is at a different scenario or a different context because we know that in verse 23, the Lord Jesus is speaking privately to His disciples. Verse 25, clearly then there's an introduction of someone else who's not considered part of that number. Therefore, it's no longer a private encounter. So we're in another scenario, maybe in a synagogue, maybe somewhere else, where Jesus is teaching, and there's a lawyer. And I want us to look tonight at the question that he asks and the verses that we've read together in light of that question. And so I've simply entitled my message, What Shall I Do to Inherit Eternal Life? What Shall I Do to Inherit Eternal Life? And we're going to consider it very simply. We'll see, first of all, the questioner then the question, and then the answer. So first of all, the questioner. And we are told of him in verse 25, Behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? First of all, we would note his occupation. He is a lawyer. Now, when we think of a lawyer, we think of someone that deals with civil and criminal matters. That's immediately what comes to mind and while that would in part have been involved with this man, it was much broader than that because as they looked at the law, it all came from the law of God and the, the varying interpretations by the rabbis. So, so this man is an expert, yes, in matters that relate to the civil, but particularly in that which relates to the religious. He's a man who is meant to know inside out the Old Testament Scriptures. 
He's meant to be able to understand them in such a way that he can apply them in whatever scenario arises within the community. He is someone that can be consulted, someone even that Pharisees would, would keep close by so that they would understand how to deal with the various things that would arise within any given community. He is an expert in the law. He has to know it. He has to be able to apply it and give good counsel in the community. And sometimes it deals with civil matters. But many times it deals with the religious as well. So his life then is to study the law and to study the writings of the most influential rabbis so that he can in turn apply the wisdom of the ages to the present day and the community in which he lives and serves. He gives legal counsel. And again, we're not told the setting here. It may have been in a synagogue. We, we have no idea, but, but he is there. He hasn't removed himself from the crowd that are around the Lord Jesus Christ. He hasn't taken himself out of, that, uh, out of what is going on. He is, he is there. And again, we, we don't know exactly all the intentions here. We'll, we'll endeavor to look that, at that in just a moment. But at the beginning, all we have is this, this certain lawyer, this unnamed expert in the law, stands up. This brings us then to his intention. What is his intention? We are told he tempted or tested him or even tried him. Now, there's debate here. Is this word given to indicate that there was this kind of corrupt motivation in his mind, that he is endeavoring to catch the Lord Jesus Christ out, as often was the case among the religious elite? Is there any hostility here? Or is it a genuine inquiry, a genuine testing? Here's an expert perceiving another expert, though not, uh, let's say, accredited by the usual um, schools. He is listening to Jesus Christ. Never man spake like this man. And, and perhaps then there's, there's that simple test to see, does this man really know his stuff? That would be putting a positive spin on his intention. And there's certainly some that take that view, but I'm not so sure. The follow-up to the interaction in verse 29, after Jesus is this first interaction with him, it says, And he, willing to justify himself, said unto Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And so on. And there would appear to be at least some kind of latent hesitancy to to reflect any real appreciation for the Lord Jesus Christ and in the initial interaction that develops. But we can't be absolutely sure. But whatever the case is, this, there is some kind of intention here, whether it is just curious, does this man really know? Or, or perhaps I'm going to expose him. I'm going to show him up as the fraud that he is. And so he asks this really interesting question. Master, there's respect. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, such a man as this is going to be interested in anything to do with the kingdom. And this question is related to the kingdom. Turn for a moment to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. You find something similar here. The Lord Jesus has spoken of the importance of little children in relation to how he views them. And in verse... Well, we'll just read verse 18. A certain ruler asked him, saying, Good master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So he's been dealing with the kingdom. You can see that in verse 17 and verse 16. And this question then, this, this different ruler rises up and asks a very similar question. Good master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And the Lord Jesus answers here, in this occasion, he doesn't uh, respond with a question to the question. He simply says, Thou knowest the commandments, do not commit adultery, and so on and so forth. And all these have I kept from my youth. And Jesus heard these things. He said, Yet lackest thou one thing. And if you go down to verse 24, when he goes away, when Jesus saw that he was very sorrowful, he said, 
how hardly shall they that of riches enter into the kingdom of God? So, so this is really the heart of the matter. The question about eternal life is a question about entering the kingdom. Now to the Jews then, this is, this is of utmost priority. They want to be part of this kingdom. Messiah is going to come. He's going to set up His kingdom. And that therefore is a point of great interest to them. So seen in that light, you can see it's not just some kind of basic question about religious matters. It is vital if one is going to be part of the kingdom set up by Messiah. So this is the questioner that we have here before us. But secondly, then we want to consider the question, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? I want you to note here a couple of things. First of all, that this question implies a recognition of life beyond the grave. This question recognizes life beyond the grave. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? In the whole concept of the kingdom, there's this sense of this ongoing life that will be ushered in by the Messiah. And so how might one participate in that, this experience of life? Now, you might wonder, well, what really did these these men know about eternal life? Maybe you have it in your mind that this is a New Testament concept. The Bible in the Old Testament doesn't really deal with the whole idea of eternal life. Therefore, from what angle is he coming? But I would say to you, that's not the case at all. They had, a, they had an understanding that there is real life, more than just what we experience now. And they anticipated that, they expected that, and they believed it. There are a number of passages that reflect this. If you consider, for example, just in the Psalms, in Psalm 16, verse 11, a well-known psalm where it is applied by Peter in relation to the Lord Jesus Christ, his soul not being left in hell, and so on. But in verse 11, it says, Thou wilt show me the path of life, in thy presence is fullness of joy at thy right hand. There are pleasures forevermore. And so on the back of this whole idea of not being left in the grave, there is this being shown the path of life, and it's into the presence of the living God where there is fullness of joy. The next psalm as well, Psalm 17, this time verse 15, we are told, Ask for me, the psalmist says, I will behold thy face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. So he's looking to another day, a morning where he will awaken and not be the same as he is presently. He's going to have on, take on him a likeness like unto his God. Psalm 21, verse 4, Speaking of the king, he asked life of thee, and thou gavest it him, even length of days forever and ever. Words have no meaning if the psalmist isn't understanding that here is one seeking life. As a living person, he is seeking life, and he has promised life that is described as length of days forever and ever. Now, the ancients all had an interest in the afterlife. Any of you that read anything about the Egyptians, the Greeks, or any of the ancient pagans, they all had an interest in the afterlife, and they had various understandings as to, as to what that looks like. And when you study their various funerals, you can see them indicating as they have conducted their funerals that this person is passing on. He's, he's crossing over. Or there's some kind of transition that is taking place. He has left this scene. He is entering another life. And you have to ask the question, why is it that across cultures, across nations, and different generations, there is this interest and understanding and belief in life after this life? Our present culture does its best to suppress it. The entire philosophical view of the secularist is to suppress any sense of the afterlife, but it, 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 it is almost impossible to remove from man this sense that there's something to come. Even those that are most secular will be found using language that indicates something is coming afterwards. 
what it really is. Because when you think of all the other creatures that God made, I cannot live in the brain of a dog or a bear or a lion or a chimpanzee or a giraffe or a whale. But I hazard a fairly certain guess that they are not pondering an afterlife. There's no consideration of after this life. Man then stands unique in creation in this way as well as in many other ways. And it's part of the image of God in man. This, this sense of immortality. This inherent awareness Something follows this life. So you, you scan, as I've already said, the pages of history and the, the various forms of funerals that are conducted by pagan lands and nations that have absolutely no understanding of the Scriptures and this deep interest in what happens after this life. The Jews had guidance from God. This man had an understanding that was rooted in the Old Testament Scriptures and recognized in a more precise fashion the reality that there is something after the grave for men. One of the most elucidating passages in the Old Testament Scriptures is found in Daniel chapter 12. And Daniel speaks prophetically there of a day to come. And in verse 2 we are told, Many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And that takes you to an existence after the grave. Something happens. After this, as a writer to the Hebrews puts it, the judgment. The judgment. And the teacher of the law, this, this lawyer, understands this. His question implies an understanding of it. Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? I know there's an existence beyond. I recognize that. I believe that. To some degree, he had to have believed it. And so his question is coming from this understanding. Now, let me ask you, do you ask such questions? Questions about life after this life. What happens when I die? These are important questions. And it is stunning. It is stunning to think of how many years can pass before an individual will ever give consideration to what after this? Or even Christians can, can give lip service to an interest in the, the, the life after, but never, never does it really shape their thinking or shape they're living. They live precisely like everyone else. Maybe with some sense that there's something nice that's going to take place to, to a certain category of people, and maybe something bad to a, a separate category of people, but, but it doesn't really shape them. Our Lord Jesus would have Eternity to be a profound influence on how we live. So many of the parables he gave spoke of, of what happens after our stewardship in this life. The Apostle Paul frequently spoke of the joy of, of his labors in light of that day. Not just the joy of seeing people transformed by the gospel here and now, but in light of that day, this, this, this joy that will come upon seeing the fruit of his labor in another day. So it's not that he labored in the churches simply for some immediate joy as he labored to people or before people, and in the lives of people. But it was with this thought to, 
to the future. And I would just ask you to, to test your own mind and heart on this. I mean, how often do you really think about eternity? Standing before Almighty God, giving account of the deeds done in the body, that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof on the day of judgment. Well, language like this that, that is peppered through the New Testament, it is there not to be ignored. It is to make an impression upon your life that you young people begin early to have this sense of the, the brevity of your existence, the certainty of the judgment, and the recognition that you have only one life. There is no do-over, no second chance, no ability to stand in the presence of the glorified Lord Jesus and then say, send me back. Now that I've seen you, Lord, I want to go back and do it all over again. You don't get that opportunity. The language is given to us. The Scriptures are clear in regards to this. And it ought to be taken on board and shape us now. And if it doesn't, it is nothing but unbelief. We don't actually believe what we say we believe. Every time I think and deal with eternity, every single time, it is the most convicting subject to preach upon. The awareness of how little eternity shapes my own life so as I say in this question it implies a recognition of life beyond the grave There's something that awaits us, an existence that is before us, described here as eternal life. But also it indicates a motivation for life beyond the grave. To ask this question, to be sitting there and ask this question, means that this man thinks about it. If we were to conduct a question and answer session every single Lord's Day in perpetuity, my guess is it would be a long time before I would get the direct question, how do I inherit eternal life? Maybe that's because I'm found in the church, among Christians that are meant to know the answer, certainly would be coloring that. But how often have you been asked it? How often have you ever had someone come to you and ask you, how may I inherit eternal life? How do I inherit eternal life? It doesn't happen very often. I wish it happened more often. I wish people came regularly and said, Master, preacher, pastor, rabbi, whatever. It's amazing sometimes the terms people use, the occasions when someone comes and says, Father, I've had that once or twice. So this man thinks about it. I have a sneaky suspicion that the the religious atmosphere of Israel was such that there was much pump and show that did not deal with the inherent longings of the soul. And so men would make their way into this religious atmosphere 
and they would train and learn and get educated and begin to conduct their lives within this area of expertise. Scribes, lawyers, Pharisees, Sadducees, in their different schools, in their different contexts, they would, they would give themselves to this. They were meant to then be the experts that had all the answers. And there was this sense in which, as Jesus had to deal with often, and especially in John chapter 8, we be of Abraham's seed. And this becomes the undergirding sense of confidence. This, this girds us. This makes us think everything's okay. We be of Abraham's seed. But all of that, all of that, the, the, the indoctrination, the drilling, the, the, the cultural atmosphere that would feed into this sense of having confidence in the mere fact that you were born as an Israelite, many of them had to have this, this sense within the soul, it does, it's not enough. Why is it that I don't feel that I've that I've got any peace. Any of you that have read about or learned of the life of Martin Luther will, will understand where, where I'm coming from here because he went through this very same thing, this longing to seek to please God. And when challenged at times like, do you love God? And the response in his heart was, love God? I hate God. I hate God. Because he had this constant sense that he could, he could not match up. He could not meet the mark. He was doing everything that he had to do. Sometimes spending hours in confession, giving to the priest every single sin of the past day. Hours enumerating every single detail. As a lawyer in his mind, he could look at the law, see all of his minor breaches of the law, and he would detail and list them and look for some kind of, of respite. But he couldn't find it. He could not find it. Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night. Against, again, there's something going on there. We know that thou art a teacher come from God. No man doest these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. And there, there's something, somebody's craving something that he thinks maybe Jesus can, can help give clarity upon. I think this question comes from a man that thinks often about eternity and the fact that all that he is doing does not give him any real sense of confidence that it's sufficient. Like most of the others, he's not going to say anything. He's not going to show his hand. Again, if you, if you were to go, I'm, I'm just from memory, I hope I'm writing this, go back to the Luke 18 Is it there? I don't know if it's there. Is it? I'm, I'm just, there's a certain other portion. It's not there. Is there a certain other portion where someone comes with a similar request? That's just gone from me right now in my mind. Where someone comes and, and Jesus discerns that in their response. He says, I, he perceives that you're not far from the kingdom. Just by the questioning, the line that he's going on, you're not far from the kingdom. Maybe, maybe this man struggled with the similar things. Again, these, these inherent desires, this, this motivation to have an interest in how a man can have life beyond the grave. And Jesus then comes into this. He steps right into the midst of this where men think about it, and they ponder it, and they're meant to have it. You know, we, we, we're, we're meant to have it. Eternal life, we're the, we're the great teachers, but, but in their consciences, many of them are, are struggling. There's just no satisfaction in all the outward observance of things, and yet they daren't speak it because they'd be discredited by those within the community. And Jesus comes and preaches, and he is constantly then dealing with the subject of eternal life. You remember in John chapter 3, as he dealt with Nicodemus, and verse 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, 
that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So this, this subject comes up even before the religious elite, those like Nicodemus, the rulers. Jesus is pressing this constantly wherever he goes. He speaks in terms of eternal life, eternal life. If you want eternal life, you must believe in me. If you want eternal life, if you want to be part of the kingdom, you must believe in me. Eternal life is found in me. John 4. At the well. Verse 14. Whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. John 5. Verse 39, search the Scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. And ye will not come to me that ye might have life. So you're, you're gleaning the Scriptures, you're musing, you're understanding of the Old Testament. You think by that there is life, but if you miss me in that, you don't have life, and I'm calling you to me. John 6, verse 40, after feeding the 5,000 the following day and the multitude are there. I referred to it this morning. This is the will of Him that sent me, that everyone which seeth the Son and believeth in Him may have everlasting life. And I will raise Him up at the last day. And you remember then, you remember after the multitude turn and they walk away from Jesus and the disciples are left alone and Jesus asks that question, will you also go away? And what does Peter say? To whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. Eternal life. This is what it's about. Eternal life. And Peter had understood. He, he had grasped this, that, that eternal life, one must be in proximity to, union with the Son of God to have eternal life. And here's a man, and he, is, he thinks about it. This, this is the question, one question. What, what one question would you ask Jesus? This is the question he asks. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And this dominates then Christ's ministry. I've mentioned many verses already. There are many others. John 10, famously, verse 27 and 28 my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. That famous part of his prayer in John 17, verse 3, that so struck John Knox, this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. And then you find it through the, the epistles as well, the, perhaps one of the most well-known when Paul writes in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So this man has a motivation. He, he, I, there's something in him that desires eternal life. He longs to have eternal life. He, he wants to possess it. Maybe he thinks he does. Certainly seems to be the case. But this is the question that he ponders. It's, it's there in his mind. Because this is the most dominant thing. If we don't have this, we have nothing. So I ask you, how much thought do you give to this? How much thought do you give to the kind of language Jesus used in order to make you think about this. For example, Mark 8, what shall it profit a man if he should gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Or addressing the, the conscience that was determined by a fear of man, Fear not him that can destroy the body, 
but fear him that can destroy both body and soul in hell. What is Christ doing there? He is making men think. He is provoking thought that, that spends time musing upon, is my life dictated, governed, controlled under the sway of the influence of eternity? You will live forever. You will be you forever. No reincarnation. No change. The essence of who you are, your being, your soul is who you are, and you will be who you are forever. So the question really, as it indicates this sense of motivation or interest in eternal life, it is also it is also bearing out the, the fearful understanding. What if I don't have this life? That was what struck me. The very first time I walked into church as a young adult, I had been there, I guess, by force on a number of occasions from the ages of six, seven, eight. From that time until I was 19 years of age, at that point then, when I walked in to church, that was the one takeaway I had. The one thing that left an impression. Eternity. I was made to think, perhaps in a way that may be the first time in my life, I was made to think, what if there is an eternity? What if? That brings us then to the answer. The answer. Verse 26, Jesus said unto him, What is written in the law? How readest thou? And he answering said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy strength and with all thy mind and thy neighbor as thyself. And he answered him, Thou hast answered right. This do, and thou shalt live. In this answer, we have to first see the contribution of the lawyer. Because the Lord, of course, meets his question with a question, and so the lawyer is brought to answer it in verse 27. Now, one of the desires of many of the religious elite of that time was to prove... Again, I don't know what the motive is here, but one of the desires that the religious elite had was to prove that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, is a violator of the law in the most grievous of ways. So they looked for all sorts of things that would be considered criminal to the point that everyone, if they, if they understood that that's what he was guilty of, they would distance themselves from him. And so he gets called a glutton and a wine-bibber, which seems 
to be you know, something that, would you really spend time with a rabbi who was a, a glutton and a wine-bibber? Other accusations, of course, of breaking the Sabbath. Blasphemy. Of course, bringing these accusations is, 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 is bringing into the minds of the men the sense, this man does not uphold the law. He's not like us. We uphold the law. And in Christ's response, this man is a lawyer. Christ, no doubt, knows that. And so he says, well, well what is written in the law? How readest thou? How do, you, how do you understand it? And there's a lot of wisdom there, of course. Answering a question with a question. Rather than Christ answering in such a way that then the man gets to examine Christ's answer, Christ gets to either affirm or deny that the man is correct in his response. But more than that, more than that, by Christ responding in this way, he's actually laying himself under the conclusion of the law. And so the accusation that would come that would suggest Jesus is not interested in the law which of course he denies in Matthew 5.17 when he says, I came not to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. But by putting it in this way, what says the law? He's saying, I am interested just as you're interested in what the law says. What does the law say? You tell me what the law says, that's the answer. Christ therefore is going against the, these, these kind of accusations the insinuations that here's a man that does not care about the law of God. He's saying, no, give me the answer from the law, and that's what we will submit to. And so the man gives his answer. His answer, of course, is a summation of the law, which, of course, quotes from two very important passages that that of themselves, the law summarizes what man needs to know about God, about his law. But then within even that, there are these statements that are even more concise summaries of the whole spectrum, the whole gamut of it. In that which relates to God, you find it in Deuteronomy 6, verse 5, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy might. So he says that's what the law says. And adds to that then the language of Leviticus 19, verse 18. Thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against thy children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am the Lord. It's always amazing to me <laughs> that people want to say that the Old Testament is redundant and in the next breath say, love your neighbor. By what standard? By what standard? How, how am I to love my neighbor? Nonsense. I, even, <laughs> even certain lawyers... <laughs> I've come out with that, but I'll not go there tonight. So he gives his understanding. And what an answer it is. This is, this is the perfect answer. The teacher asks the question. This is the perfect answer. Aside from giving the entirety of the law, this, this is the perfect answer. He takes from the two passages that most significantly deal with our duty to God and our duty to man, and he pulls them together, and he says, that's the law. That's the law. And therefore, that is how one inherits eternal life. So this is the contribution of the lawyer, which brings us then next to the conclusion of the Savior. Verse 28, Jesus said unto him, Thou hast answered right. This do, and thou shalt live. Is that the answer you would give? I very much doubt it. Christ says, if you do this, you will live. 
You imagine then that this is a repudiation of the gospel. Because we're here tonight and we're saying that Christ alone can save men. That He alone has eternal life. We have quoted passages where He explicitly states that if you want eternal life, it is in me. You have to believe in me. So is Jesus contradicting the rest of His ministry? Is He playing games with this man? This do and thou shalt live. Is He lying? Is it a lie to say, do this and you will live? And there may be some of you here tonight and you, you, you think about that, you think, well, how, how, how can that be true? How can it be true when, when I know, I know everything else that the Bible says and that we cannot save ourselves, but Jesus here is saying that if we do what the man said is what the law calls us to, that we can then live. How is that reconcilable? And here is where we understand the covenant of works. There is a covenant that stands before man that has not been abolished. It is the covenant that was made with Adam in the garden. Do this and you will live. Now we know what Adam did. He, he broke that covenant. He failed to uphold that. And Jesus, or the Lord says rather, that the day you eat thereof, you will die. And immediately, Adam then is launched into this experience of death for him and all his posterity. But here Jesus then is saying, well, if, if you do this, if you do the law, you will live. What is he dealing with? What is he applying here? He is understanding, he is laying out that the law, the law, the, the, the covenant of works is still in play. If a man can uphold what God stated to Adam in the first place, he can live. If he is able to love God in perfection and love his neighbor impeccably, he will live. What do we mean by impeccably or perfection? I mean what I say, without any breach at all. James 2 verse 10 tells us, Whoso keepeth the whole law, yet offends in one point, is guilty of all. Whoso keepeth the whole law, yet offends in one point, is guilty of all. There is no escaping that. So what Jesus Christ is saying, what He's actually laying out, this is the theological aspect of this, what he is laying out is the actual basis of how he earns eternal life for us. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? This. And Christ comes to inherit eternal life for sinners because they cannot do it themselves. And this man knows this as Christ presses it as he says, yes, you've given the right answer, and then follows up, this do, and thou shalt live. The conscience begins to be pricked, which leads on, and we'll get to it, God willing, next week. He willing to justify himself. Yes, I'm going to try and dodge this bullet. But the pressure of the language is unavoidable. The man has been exposed in a moment of time, the law says this, and you have to do that perfectly to live. And he knows, he knows, and we'll get to how the Jews interpreted Leviticus 19 verse 18, how they understood their neighbor and all that, because that's where the good Samaritan comes in, because Christ then says, this is your neighbor. And they have found ways, they had found ways to kind of hop, skip, and jump around the implications of what the law actually taught. But the man is feeling the weight of the plain language of the law. And this is the glorious thing, beloved. When we read language like this, I can say to you, I could say to you, do this and you can live. Do it. Go ahead. Go and love God without flaw. Go and love your neighbor without any blemish whatsoever. You will have eternal life. Your problem is you can't do it. You cannot do it. It is utterly impossible. 
Your past haunts you. If you, you were to try your best, if you were to make your entire life subjective, when you left here tonight, the only thing I'm concerned about, the only thing is this. I'm going to give every ounce of my energy to inheriting eternal life. You still would fail. And again, going back to Luther, this was his problem. He's trying to please God. He is told, here's how to inherit eternal life. Do this, Luther. And he's doing it. He is doing it like no monk had ever done it before. He knows that. He had taken on himself this responsibility that, that if there's something that has to be done, I will do it. I will be the most monkish monk that ever there was. And so he gives himself to it. Every single hour of the day is this constant endeavor to try and please God. And every day there's this weight, this weight that crutches him. Failure, failure, sinner, breaking the law. No life for you, Martin. If you were to try your best, from this night to the rest of your life, you would come to the same crushing conclusion. I can't do it. I cannot do it. I cannot love God. I cannot love my neighbor as the law demands. And then, then, then the fear comes in, therefore, eternal life is outside my grasp. That's right there where Jesus brings relief. Jesus came, as I've already said, to do what you, with all of your effort, cannot do. Love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength with all your mind. And your neighbor as yourself. So that blessed Son of God took on flesh, made of a woman, made under the law, in order that he might redeem us who were under that same law. And he lives and upholds it and he inherits eternal life. And through him then we receive, by believing in him, we receive the adoption of sons. Enabling us to cry, Abba, Father. Knowing that we are now, as we sang, free from the law, O happy condition. Not that we dismiss it as irrelevant, but the language of the hymn writer, free from, free from its condemning tones. Free from its language of judgment. Free from its conclusion that you're damned. There is therefore now no, underline it, no, no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. We are not justified by the deeds of the law. By no means can we ever be justified by our activity to obey the law. And this, this of course, as we close, this is what Paul came to understand, isn't it? Let's, let's close with this. Philippians chapter 3. And here is a man. And his whole life, he was, he was, he was the Martin Luther. Endeavoring to please God. 
and to bring his merit and his credentials before God as something that would have merit and value, that God would find pleasure in what it is that this individual was doing. Philippians 3, verse 4, Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. I challenge anyone. That's what he's saying. I challenge anyone. If you think your flesh can inherit eternal life, I challenge you. I more. Circumcised the eighth day. I didn't come in as a Johnny come lately. My parents weren't later believers, proselytes, conversions coming into the Jewish religion. I was born and circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. Significance there. And Hebrew of the Hebrews as touching the law, a Pharisee. That was my life. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Yes, I didn't sit on my armchair. I was an armchair religious person. I went after the enemies of God, though so I thought. Touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. As far as what was put upon me, I thought I had, I had done everything. But as he testifies in Romans 7, he comes to this realization that the, this blamelessness isn't so blameless. So in his conversion, here's what he realizes. What things were gained to me, I counted loss for Christ. Why? Why? That he might be found in him, verse 9. Verse nine found in him. I want to be found there, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. I want a righteousness that is credited to me by faith, by believing, by trusting the one who inherited eternal life. That's why I want it. I don't want to be, I don't want that pressure. I don't want that to be upon me. Because I will fail. I cannot do it. And neither can you. You can't. If it could be done, Paul says, I more, I more. If you have anything the glory of about your ability, I more. And he realized this is all, you know what it all is? It's all comparatively dung. All comparatively dung. It doesn't mean anything. It has no value. It is as waste before God. My need is Christ. I need Him. I need Him. I, that I may know Him. It's him. Oh, friend, run to Christ. Run to Christ. Run away from any illusion that you can please God. You can't. Run away from any persuasion from the devil that these things don't matter. They do. Run away from any idea that the judgment day, things will just all pan out. They will not unless you're in Christ. Get into Christ. Get into Christ. Tonight, children, press in. Young person, press in to Christ. This constant sense of up and down, trying to please, please parents, please maybe even other Christians, trying to put on some kind of facade that you belong when really you don't. It's a new heart you need. It's the Christ you must go. And it's there. There you will find rest. Oh, blessed rest. Rest for the believing soul. Lord help you. May the Lord help you to turn on to Christ this night. Let's pray. Friend, in God's name I plead with you. Press into Christ. If you are not saved, press into Christ. If you need any counsel in that regard, if you would like me to open the Scriptures with you, perhaps you have some questions and doubts that you're struggling with. And don't suffer in silence. Don't, don't listen to the devil's lie. Just as he tells you, ah, don't worry about it tonight. Some other time. That's another one of his tools. 
encouraging procrastination and things we just ought not to procrastinate with. Lord, I pray for each heart. I don't know where anyone stands. I really don't. The Lord knoweth them that are His. God, I pray, should there be anyone here that is trusting in their ability to uphold the law in and of themselves, illusions of spiritual grandeur, refuges of lies in which they hide, telling themselves that what they have is sufficient because they were baptized, because they grew up in the church or in America, thoughts that make them think I could never actually get saved because everyone thinks I'm already saved. Lord, put away all these lies. Give relief to that soul that's under the burden of their sin. May they find that reprieve only in Jesus Christ. He called men to come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Bless the fellowship of your people. Be with those that go downstairs. Bless the food to our bodies and nourish us that we may in turn serve thee our God. May the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with all thy blood-bought people now and evermore. Amen.